succession of jobs and started to raise two daughters, and now it lay across my lap, its neck broken. Barbara, my wife, came in to see why I was making odd moaning and whimpering noises. She's a musician herself, a real musician, a classical flute player. A dozen times a year we play flute and guitar duets, mostly at weddings, so she understood at once. Look, she said, your fiftieth birthday's coming up. I'll buy you a new guitar. This was, we both knew, mostly a gesture of moral support. Neither of us had any money, but it gave me something to do apart from mope. So I started looking at guitars. Guitar shops had changed a lot in the quarter century or so since I'd bought the Fylde. For a start, there were a lot more guitars on the walls by a lot more makers. Not only Martin, Gibson, Fender, Ovation, and Guild, plus a raft of classicals, but also Taylor, Tacoma, Breedlove, Collings, Washburn, Montana, Santa Cruz, and a few more names at the cheap end, and much, much more variety. Not only more variety in woods and colors, but also in body shape and design, with the sound hole varying in size, shape, and position, the headstock flaring out into new configurations, and almost a quarter of the guitars in the showroom featured various kinds of cutaway. Less obviously, perhaps a third also included built-in pickups for amplification, and even sliders for setting one's own EQ levels. The acoustic guitar, in short, had begun to merge with the electric. I spent hours hanging out, fooling around with this guitar or that, and decided, in passing, that someone should write a sociology of the guitar store. Even when guitars were sold at more general music stores, or even at furniture stores or small-town general stores, the store offered more to the guitarist than just a new guitar. Guitar stores have functioned as message centers for local musicians and as teaching studios. Field recordings often took place in music stores, and music store owners often acted as official or unofficial talent scouts for record companies. Many guitar makers learnt their trade by doing repairs in a store's back room or basement, and the first consistent sets of electric guitar strings were put together and sold by a music store owner. Because guitar stores are often owned by guitarists. They've also become places where their mates can come and hang out, thus serving as social centers and even old guitarists' homes. Most interesting of all, a guitar store is the only place in the known universe where a guy will allow himself to shop like a woman. Spending half an hour, an hour, two hours trying a dozen guitars with only the faintest possibility of actually buying something, playing a few licks, swapping a few lies, while in the background someone plays the opening bars of Stairway to Heaven. Yet all this diligent and selfless research was surprisingly little fun, and this was the first clue to the extraordinarily intimate relationship between a guitarist and his or her guitar. I found I had strangely intense reactions to every guitar I saw. I hated sunbursts. I couldn't stand anything in orange. I despised dreadnoughts. I preferred light-colored tops to dark and light-colored backs too. The big name makers didn't interest me. I wanted something made by someone who cared about every instrument he or she made. Someone living up a dirt road who made something slightly different every time. I couldn't understand any of these prejudices, but I couldn't ignore them either. I despaired of ever finding a guitar I liked. Every instrument I played, no matter how fancy, just didn't feel right—not just under my fingers, but in my hands, in its close and intimate proximity to my body.
When the remarkable singer-dancer-guitarist Baji Assad looked closely at the classical guitar that had been passed down to her years previously by her older brother Odeya, she saw it had a dark spot on the upper bout where he rested his bearded chin while practicing. When we play, she wrote, we embrace the instrument, we hold it close. These shop guitars had the opposite effect on me. Holding them was like being 18 again at yet another ghastly college party, sitting with a girl on my lap who had looked good a few minutes earlier but now was quickly becoming a dead weight, thinking, well, that was a mistake. I didn't want an expensive guitar or even necessarily a beautiful one. I wanted a guitar that would feel at home, that would curl up on my lap like a cat. I glued my filed's cracked neck as best I could, clamped it, let it heal for several days, and discovered that the glue job held. Now the filed seemed even more like me, lined and furrowed but still functioning. What a remarkable thing a guitar is, a small miracle of wood, vulnerable but oddly resilient. After several weeks, two plans emerged side by side. I was advised to check out a guitar maker named Rick Davis, living up a dirt road, about 15 miles away on the slopes of the Green Mountains. Wouldn't it be interesting, I thought, given that he lives so nearby, to watch the guitar coming together and then write about it? At the same time, my own unexpectedly strong reactions to the guitars in shops and on web pages got me thinking. Why were there so many different kinds of guitars when oboes, say, or violins had apparently reached a fixed state? Was it something to do with timing that the guitar had arrived in a turbulent century and changed with the times? Or did it have something to do with America, the land of endless inventiveness? Did the fact that the guitar varied so much make each one a personal instrument? And Adding up all these questions, how did the guitar become wall-to-wall -wall popular in the United States and to a lesser degree throughout the world? Why had the guitar become the instrument of the 20th century to the point where more guitars are sold in this country than all other instruments combined? So that's what I did when I wasn't looking over Rick Davis's shoulder and pestering him with questions. I set out to write a kind of chronicle of the American guitar, not a catalogue of makes and models, nor a genealogy of celebrities, but an attempt to understand this curious relationship between the instrument and the people involved with it, and how that has grown and changed over time. A suite of unlikely stories, part history, part love song. Meeting My Maker it's a warm, sunny September day in the Vermont Valleys, but in the hills above the bend-in-the-river hamlet of Jonesville, it's already misty, looking like early fall. Stage Road, a dirt road that winds up toward the tiny village of West Bolton, is gullied by recent heavy rain, as is the long, steep dirt driveway up to Rick Davis's house, home and headquarters of Running Dog Guitars. Rick's face is comfortably creased like soft leather, a warmth of line unusual in one relatively young, our age, he says, referring to another guy around 50. Early maturity is, of course, a positive and sought-after quality in a guitar. He's wearing a black turtleneck underneath dark blue fleece, khakis, mocks, the classic thinking person's cool weather gear in Vermont, the Subaru of clothing. 
His workshop in among the birch and pine trees just uphill from the house is small, new, and crammed with bandsaw, router, sander, drill press, heater, generator, humidifier, dehumidifier, and shelves bearing all manner of hand tools and pieces of wood. On one workbench, a broad strip of Indian rosewood is being bent into shape for the sides of a guitar. On another lies a guitar top, that is, the front of the instrument, with strips of Sitka spruce running across it for bracing. On yet another workbench is a nearly finished concert jumbo in Hawaiian koa, a tigerish wood with an astonishing complexity of grain, depth, and variety of color. On the fingerboard. He's inlaid his own mother-of-pearl designs on the third, fifth, seventh, and ninth frets. They're small maple leaves, all set at different angles to make them look as if they're falling down the guitar, as they've already started to fall outside. And then, at the octave fret, a snowflake. I wanted something that would show where the guitar comes from, and cutting out Subaru Outbacks and Saab 900s was a bit difficult, he says dryly. From that moment. I'm lost, not because I know anything conclusive about his skill or the compatibility between my playing and his guitars, but because of those maple leaves. The filed, as I now see it, stands for the first half of my life, the English half. I'll ask Rick to build me a guitar for the second half of my life, the Vermont half. Much later, after the guitar is finished, Rick will refer to the eternal and infinite capacity of the consumer to confuse making a purchase with falling in love. I should have known better, I suppose, but then again, maybe not. First guitars tend to be like.